My guest today on the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast is Robert Vetter. Bob is a healer and soul coach who utilizes a combination of indigenous-inspired and Western methods to co-create lasting change for everyday modern problems. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and we'll have him back for more, I promise. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. So I'm here with Bob Vetter. Bob, welcome to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you, Doug. My pleasure to be here. So I wanted you to have, I wanted to have you on the show because you are are different. You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody tells me. <laughs> you, know, you, you are. No, in, in that you do coaching. Yes, you do coaching and. You come in from a very, very different perspective than most people do. Um, you have a unique, as far as most people are concerned, as far as I'm concerned, a unique background in, um, well, I'll, I'll let you, you tell us. You, you'll get it more accurately than I have. So tell us about your, your background, what, what you do with coaching that's perhaps different than what most people do. Sure. So I, I think of what I do as um, coaching with a very strong spiritual bent to it and you are just for for the record you are cultural anthropologist as well i am a cultural anthropologist guilty as charged okay and you know from the time that i was a kid i was interested in alternative spirituality you know being in high school in the 70s it was a time where it was it was odd not totally odd but a little bit odd that i was involved um, you know, at the age of 13, I was practicing yoga and studying Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and really immersed in Asian culture. So I went to college in order to learn more about that. And I developed an interest at the time at the intersection of healing and spirituality, which today is not that unusual. But back then, it was kind of unusual to put those two together. So I really wanted to know about the intersection of those two things. Why? What, what brought you to that? Um, I look back on it now, and I would say probably my own need to be healed. Hmm. So if I had to say there, there's something in the, in the alternative spirituality field called spiritual bypass, which is the idea that you, that there are people, and I would, consider myself to have been one of those who seek spirituality because they know something is is amiss something needs to be fulfilled but they circumvent the psychological growth and development that might otherwise do that so so they seek out alternate states of consciousness for example as an escape from this world so spirituality becomes this transcendent way to escape from everything that isn't working here in this world. And I would describe a lot of people who are interested in alternative spirituality in that way. 
and that's why when things turned for me, they did in that's sort of a, a that's sort of um, a prediction of what I'm about to tell you in a moment or a okay. foreshadowing. So, yeah, so I so I went to college with that interest. I wanted to go to Asia to do field work. Um, I had a major in anthropology and a minor in philosophy, which means that I was kind of looking at um, philosophy looks at the ideal and anthropology looks at the real what people actually do uh -huh. as yeah, opposed yeah. to what they say they do. So I wanted to go to Asia to do my field work. I, I ended up going to India when I was in college. Um, and then I had planned on doing field work in Asia in grad school. And I thought I was going to end up going to the University of Hawaii to the East West Center, a program there. Um, I was rejected from it and I was absolutely devastated because I that I was really counting on that. I'd only applied there and to the New York uh the New School for Social Research in Manhattan. So I was gonna take a year off and decide what I was gonna do. And at the last minute, my philosophy professor from undergrad at Oneonta told me that there was he was from India and there was a philosophy professor from India teaching at the University of Oklahoma. And he told me that they had a graduate assistantship, a full assistantship. Um, if I wanted it, basically, I could just walk right into it. So I did. And I moved to Oklahoma. Wow. And I started these courses in philosophy, which I absolutely hated. I mean, I, I hated every minute of it. And I was just going to I was going to drive back to New York, just pack up my car and move back to New York, maybe three weeks into the semester. Hmm. So on a, a lark, I walked into the anthropology department and they needed somebody that day to teach anthropology, introduction to anthropology. So I went from being an undergrad to teaching undergrads like overnight. I had to figure out how I was going to teach this course. So I was still interested in Asian culture. Now, the catch 22 was that I had to teach I had to teach, but in order to teach, I had to have a full course load. And it was too late in the semester to switch um, classes, to start new classes. So they decided that they would let me do independent study for the six or nine semester hours of credit that I needed as a minimum. And I decided that I would do ethnographic fieldwork. Now, eth cultural anthropology has two branches, ethnography that looks at one culture in depth and ethnology, where which is where you take a topic and just look at it cross-culturally. I'm sorry, could but you most of, say those two words again? Yeah, ethnography is where you go into the field and okay. you study a culture by living in and among the people and learn, go with depth okay. into that particular culture. Ethnology is more on the surface and it compares, it takes a topic and then compares how that is utilized or practiced in lots of different cultures. Gotcha. So I, they decided that they would let me do my ethnographic field work. And since I found myself in the middle of Oklahoma. Indian country, yeah. because Oklahoma at one time um, was considered Indian territory in the mm -hmm. early 1800s, uh, the government moved tribes there from as sure. far away as California New and New York all yeah. over into sure. Indian territory. So anyway, I found myself there. Um, I, I'll try to summarize this, how all these things fell into place in, in this curious way. 
So I decided that my area of interest was the intersection of spirituality and healing. And I knew that there were medicine people. And I figured if I could meet a medicine man, I could start my field work. So I met with my advisor and I thought that the advisor who had spent his whole life studying the Apaches, I thought he was gonna make it easy for me and just introduce me to somebody. But all he told me was, you're gonna have to use a networking approach and meet one person, let that person introduce you to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else. I went home, I was sharing an apartment with a, a guy who had um, posted you know, that he needed a roommate. So it was this guy, Jim. And he said, oh, well, maybe I can help you. And I said, well, how could you help me? He said, oh, well, you know, I'm part Comanche. And he said, the next time my family has a gathering, I could bring you along as a guest. So his family had a gathering coming up in like a week or two. And I went as the guest and, you know, came from New York. I had all these stereotypes about what I thought Native Americans or American Indians would be like. And, you know, being direct as I am and was. I show up and he introduces me and, you know, we get there and there's all these old men sitting in tree under a tree in folding chairs while the women were getting the meal together. So he introduces me and I said, you know, I said, hi, you know, I'm trying to find a medicine man. I'm hoping to meet a medicine man. And it was like crickets, you know, everybody, <laughs> all conversations stopped. Like when you have the, the, the record, the deal on the record, you hear that scratch and everything's quiet. <laughs> so, so nobody, nobody says anything. I'm just standing there and they're, you know, so, all right. So finally the meal is ready and we go to eat the meal and the meal is just about over. And this old man comes up to me, like when nobody's looking and he kind of says, you know, I heard what you said about wanting to meet a medicine man. He said, I, um, we still have one left today. I don't know his name and I don't, I don't know where he lives. No, I know his name, but I don't know exactly how to tell you to get there. He doesn't have a phone. You know, he, he drew me this map on a napkin, basically. <laughs> so the next week, uh, you know, so I tell Jim and Jim says, oh, well, I'll go with you. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking, oh, good. Jim is Comanche. He's going to know what to do. He'll know what to say. We take the map out. We drive. It would have been an hour and a half ride if we had found it. But we like we were lost for hours because the, there were no paved roads where we were going, no marked roads. So somehow we finally find this guy's house. We walk up to the door and knock on the door. Now I'm thinking, well, Jim's Comanche. He's going to know what to say. So we get to the door. I knock on the door and I'm waiting for Jim to say something. And Jim's waiting for me to say something. And here's this old guy, man, with like long gray braids standing at the door. And he's looking at the two of us. So nobody's saying anything. So I figured, you know, I'll just have to say the first thing that comes to my mind. I said, uh, hi, my name is Bob Vetter. I'm an anthropology student. And I was hoping you would talk to us a little bit about the Comanches. And he goes, this is how you come to my house. Now, I didn't know what he was getting at, right? And he goes, this is how you come to my house? And I said, yeah. And he said, this is how you come to my house to see me? And I go, yeah. And he goes, come in here for a minute. So he invites me and Jim, and he points to the couch, and, and like in a kind of a surly way, he goes, sit down over there. So Jim and I sit down, and he storms into this back room, and he comes back a minute later, and he's got this painting in his hands, and he hold, he's holding this painting up of a dancer, of a traditional dancer. I said, wow, that's really beautiful. And 
but he wasn't interested in what I thought of his artwork. He, said, <laughs> he goes, uh, I'm an artist and I have better things to do than to sit around talking to you. And another thing he said, that's no way to visit an Indian. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you're going to visit an Indian, the least thing you could do is bring them something to eat. So now I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I said, I'm really sorry. We got up, got off the couch, walked out the door, got in the car and drove home. So now I'm talking about going back and Jim is cursing this guy up and down. He said, I wouldn't go back to that guy's house if you paid me. So next week comes, I get in the car by myself, drive all the way down there. I stop along the way. And let me tell you, I was like broke. I was I was like the poorest graduate student you can imagine. So I, I all I could afford was a few groceries in this brown paper bag. I get to the door, I knock on the door, the same old man comes to the door. He gets this big smile on his face and I hand him the bag. He puts his hand out and he shakes my hand and he goes, now that's the way you visit an Indian. And that day really began my personal journey because it turned out that he was a very famous man. He was a famous dancer, he was a famous artist, he was known as a rainmaker. And his wife was the niece of a very famous medicine woman. Um, there was a book written about her called Sanapia, Comanche Medicine Woman. So I learned a lot about spirituality and the old ways from him. But eventually, and this is a, a you know another long story that we don't have time for now, but eventually he led me to meet an old man named Oliver Pataponi who was the last medicine man of the Comanche tribe who adopted me and took me as a, a grandson. Wow. So that was that that this was like this strange twist of fate. Now I thought that this topic that I had selected just to fulfill my requirement for the semester would be like a quick thing that I would do and be done with. Right. But I was so moved by those experiences that it it, it became the direction of my field work and everything I did in anthropology and in the years subsequent have been about native North Americans. So there's that piece of the story. While I was in grad school, uh, I was taking a course on ancient Mesoamerica and the professor had done his field work in Oaxaca, Mexico. And he mentioned in passing that there is uh, a traditional form of medicine called curanderismo that is still practiced in parts of Mexico. So my ears perked up and I went and asked him about it. And he, you know, told me what he knew about it. And I decided that I was going to do my field work on uh, an extensive field work project in Oaxaca on traditional medicine. And I started to study, you know, look into it, write about it in an academic way. So I had planned on moving there and living there for one year. I would do a short-term study on curanderismo as it was practiced in San Antonio, Texas, and then compare and contrast with uh, the way that it was practiced in rural Oaxaca, Mexico. I ended up getting a terminal master's degree and completely stopping that. Forgot about curanderismo for many years, maintained my connection with the native people in Oklahoma. And in the meantime, I was adopted into a number of other families in other tribes. And I created my business, um, which at the time was in 
taking people from all over to go live among native people and experience their life for a week at a time. You know, and we started in Oklahoma and eventually ended up doing it in South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Arizona, New Mexico, Wisconsin, and even upstate New York. So that was like, you know, that whole chunk of the picture. I promise I'm going to bring this around in a minute <laughs> to our topic at hand. You're doing fine. Take all the time you want. So I, you know, throughout all of this, I was interested in the topic of healing. Now, all many, many years later, after all of this happened, I joined a chapter of the Native American church, which is the peyote religion of the Plains Indians that eventually diffused all over parts of the United States and Canada. And when I joined it, uh, I, I was told, you know, it would be good if you could come and commit to coming to one meeting per year, one ceremony per year. And I explained, you know, I live in New York, blah, blah, blah. So we decided that the one that I would go to was the one down on the Mexican, near the Mexican border in South Texas. And that's where the this sacred medicine grows and where they go to um, to get it and bring it back to Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. It's always the same weekend in February every year. So I got ready to go down there and um, I could have either flown into San Antonio or Corpus Christi. And I ended up flying into San, San Antonio. And when I was there, I was thinking... That's right. This is where I was going to do that whole big study. And I said, I, you know, I wonder if anybody's teaching curanderismo or, or practicing it here. What I didn't know was that it had largely died out over those years. But I was able to find one woman who was practicing as a curandera, a traditional healer. And I met her and, you know, she was working in a store that was mentioned in a book called they all want magic. And she was the main featured healer in this book known as La Golondrina, which is a, a bird. I went there, met her, and it was like I had known her my whole life. I ended up spending the whole day in the store with her. And then uh, my flight to New York was canceled because of a, a blizzard. So I ended up spending an extra four days with her and being with her all the time learning. So she became my first teacher. Then I did an apprenticeship with Elena Avila, who wrote the book, Woman Who Glows in the Dark. And I was learning these specific techniques. And then I had a series of other teachers and ended up going to Mexico to learn it. Um, also the Tamascal, which is the Mesoamerican version of the sweat lodge. And throughout all of these studies, I was... I sort of had a, a an idea about healing, an ideal that would idea that would become kind of my own creative putting together of these ideas. And I prayed about it in the teepee during a couple of all night prayer sessions. And you know, there were two nights in particular that I felt like I received the answer to how to do this. Now, when you look at, I, I think back to what I learned, and I, what I learned a lot was watching master indigenous healers. I watched the way that they worked with people. 
I watched the kind of care and concern that they showed to people who were sometimes in desperate situations. I watched the way that they were able to hold space. And, you know, people use that term all the time. And I don't think that they necessarily know what that term really means. And to me, you know, we were talking about getting to essential coaching skills. If I had to tell you one skill that I think is the absolutely essential coaching skill, this is it. The ability to be with someone else in their suffering, to be with them in their suffering and not rush to fix it. Hmm. To me, that is the absolute essential coaching skill. Wow. And that is because also what, what happens is, is holding space. Yeah, it's it's holding space and, and not rushing to fix someone. Gotcha. Wow. Because what happens, you know, as I said, the, these were some of these old men that I got to be with, in my opinion. Well, I should say old men and women. They were absolute masters at this. And there was so so modeling master healers, in my opinion, is an essential coaching skill. And I was lucky because most people don't have that kind of experience. Most mm -hmm. people in the, the non-Indian world don't have a chance to, to be able to sit back and watch the way that people do this in ceremony. So ceremony provides this safe container for the healing to take place. And there are some things that happen in ceremony that pave the way for the change that's going to take place. If a person only has in their mind that coaching is about exercising a particular technique, then they are quick to jump to what that is. They're quick to pull it out of the toolbox and quickly try to change someone. Whereas in my opinion, the, we have to lay a foundation first, and that foundation is holding space and entering into the world of that person with their suffering. Because it's suffering on some level that is usually at the root of why somebody wants to be either healed or seek coaching in the first place. If everything is going along fine, there's no need to establish, to create change. But when we reach a threshold in our lives where we say enough is enough, something's got to change here, that's the motivation to do something different. But a true healer has to be able to enter into the world of that other person. And that to me is very intimate. And to me, it's also a very spiritual encounter. So for example, when I work with someone usually one of the first things that I tell them is that this is a three-way partnership. It's a partnership between you, me, and the creator or the architect of the universe or whatever you consider that transcendent power to be. And you have a responsibility on what you're going to do. I have a responsibility in what I'm going to do. And I don't think we have the right to invite in the creator 
to be a part of this until we do the part that we have said we're going to do. Because it's very easy to just say, I want to wave a magic wand and have this, this, this transcendent God take care of my problems. But that's not what we're talking about here at all. What we're talking about is I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility as a healer or I have a responsibility as the, the client to do my part and then invite in the power of the creator. Wow. So let me just stop you there. And I, and I hope that uh, my asking questions won't um, take you away from your thread because you clearly are on a, a very fascinating thread, you know, bead here. But I do have some questions, um, if, you, if it's okay if I ask you. Yeah? Please. Um, I think it's pretty clear to most of our listeners that this is a different approach to coaching than most of us have taken. And that, um, like as an NLP practitioner or hypnotherapist, you know, pe people come into my office with a problem and we do a technique or two to fix the problem. Um, if it's a coaching relationship, then usually it's not just a one-off, you know, one session, fix it, fix the problem sort of thing. But we have more of a longer term um process that we go through, as if you will, but it still tends to be very outcome-oriented. Um, there may be a, a bigger, you know, different levels of outcome, like there might be a particular issue that needs to be fixed, and then there's a bigger outcome of, you know, personal transformation as well, you know, a deepening of the understanding of the individual's place on the planet or something like that, but it's still, generally speaking, outcome-oriented. Um, and although there are practices, certainly in hypnosis, as an example, that could be thought of as ceremony, you know, sort of ceremonial practices that we do, um, rarely does is that term ever used. Um, there's no ceremony of healing that takes place. When you use the word ceremony, are you talking about a, a ceremony the way that we usually think? I think of a ceremony that you know, we enter into a, a church or something and we have a, a ceremony where the first there's a, um, some music and then there's some um, prayer or whatever. What do you mean by ceremony specifically? So, so what, fortunately what, what Kurindirismo did for me was that it, it, it created um, a new understanding for me of how ceremony can be applied and change to the needs of a particular individual. And as a as a quick story of how I came to this this metaphor that I'm going to use in explanation, I, I was uh, I was in a restaurant in Manhattan with a friend of mine who had gone through one of the apprenticeships with me in Corinderismo, and we we kind of locked horns and had a disagreement about the way that it's done. And I was trying to figure out how to explain to her what these new, what were new revelations to me at the time were. And I was looking down at the table and all of a sudden it hit me that I had the explanation. And I said, you know, earlier on in my learning, I thought curinderismo was the plate, the knife, the fork, and the glass and the salt and pepper shaker, that those were, those constituted curinderismo. Now what I think is, that curanderismo is the table underneath it. 
It's oh. the table that supports those things rather than the objects themselves. And that became the germ of this idea for me of how to creatively introduce all kinds of other elements, including NLP and Ericksonian hypnosis. So in Curanderismo, the ceremony, there are two, there are two parts to most uh, ceremonies, and they are the platica and the limpia. Platica is a heart-to-heart -heart talk, and it is different than Western psychotherapy, although there are certain parallels. But for example, we usually hold hands with the client, and we look directly into their eyes and insist on the same thing from them. We purify the space. We purify the person with the smoke of copal. We then look at what the presenting problem is and delve deeper and deeper into it, like peeling layers of an onion. And interestingly enough, there's also a parallel in the work, for example, that you would recognize in sleight of mouth because we try to identify what the limiting belief is that has led to the problem. Mm -hmm. And then we use the four, the sacred four directions in addressing that. So there are things that we turn to the different directions for in this realignment and this changeover of traditional belief. Then there is the, the, the limpia part, which is the spiritual cleansing that takes the ideas that were identified in the platica and ceremonializes it. So for example, we'll use a bundle of herbs for something um, called a barrida or sweeping. And we use the, this bundle of herbs to sweep away the emotional dust that has settled on the person. And the belief behind this is that we experience toxic emotions and normally we don't have a way to get rid of them. So what mm -hmm. they do is they just pile up. Mm -hmm. So we literally, we physically are brushing the body from one end to the other using these herbs. So whereas that gets at the surface, the energy on the surface, the next step is to, to absorb something that's deeper. And we use an egg for that which is the perfect single cell. And the egg absorbs all of this toxic energy that has been stored inside. And there's, you know, a very specific way that it's done on um, rubbing the egg, chanting or, or praying all the while and going through this, this whole procedure. Then there's a way to ceremonially dispose of the egg um, in some cases, you read the egg, so you break the egg into a glass of water, and you can use it as a way to um, determine who or what the problems are. Uh, I had one. There are lots of ways of using that as a diagnostic tool. I saw a man in Mexico, in a rural part of Mexico, who actually used the egg to diagnose how the specific internal organs are operating, that there are different parts of the interior of the egg that correspond to the physical organs in that person's body. At any rate, the egg can either be just disposed of or it can be cracked open and then used diagnostically. Then 
there, normally there's a closing. Now this is this is where I came to use some of what I learned um, in how to conduct prayer. Now I'm actually going to tie this back, interestingly enough, to um, Ericksonian hypnosis because I was studying Ericksonian, at least the writings of Erickson at the time that I was learning all of this. And I was trying to understand how this passive use of language in Ericksonian patterns can be used to affect change. And that's how I came to a way of using prayer that was hypnotic. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to also to the studies that I did um, in the history of something called the ghost dance movement. And in the 1800s, there was a Paiute prophet named Wavoka who had a vision that there was a way to make the, the buffalo come back from extinction mm -hmm. uh, for making the white people leave and bringing back the spirits of the ancestors. And in it, he was told to have the people hold hands and do this, a particular type of round dance with a particular type of song that went along with it. But here's the interesting part. James Mooney was an anthropologist who was hired by the federal government to investigate certain things that were going on among Plains Indians. And when he went, what he noticed was something really, really curious. He noticed that the women were mostly the dancers while the men were the singers. And Wavoka would do would take an eagle feather and he would use this rhythmic motion in front of the women as a way of starting this dance. And that they would frequently fall down on the ground and go into trance spontaneously during this dance. Huh. And he described it in his writings as a type of hypnosis. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, well, you know, that's really interesting. Let me look more into hypnosis. And then in learning about Erickson, it came to me that he uses this very indirect way of establishing change. And so the way that I learned to pray was on behalf of the patient or the client with an idea toward them, rather than prayer being asking God to take over and do something for them, for the prayer to bring out the resources that they already have in them so that they can understand their condition in a different way so that they can see themselves as agencies of their own change as opposed to being a victim in the process. Sounds, sounds very Ericksonian to me. Wow. This is fascinating. Do, do, do people ever come to you without knowing that this is all that you do? They just know that you're a good coach and then you start saying, well, we're going to rub this egg on you now. And then, <laughs> um, <laughs> generally, <laughs> well, you know, more often than not, the way that, that people started to come to me was was because of um, my Temascal. So the Temascal I mentioned is the Mesoamerican version of the sweat lodge. Right. And um, when, when I have one in your backyard, I have, yeah, here in my yard, right. Uh, it's a pretty big one. I mean, it'll, we get 
over 30 people inside. Oh, really? It's a pretty good size. That's huge. Um, so by, by creating it as a community Temescal, what I agreed to, I guess you could say, is that I am the, the care te- caretaker of it. So it's not something that I own as much as something that I hold for the sake of a community. And this community has built up over the years of, um, you know, some curious people, non, uh, non-Mexican people. And a lot of, frankly, I would say 70% of the people who come are Mexican. And, you know, either they knew about Temascal when they lived in Mexico, or they, they want to somehow go back to their old roots, even though they're living here in New York. So, Really, the the people who came to me initially were people who um, kind of got to know me and what I do from being in the Temascal, where I take that role of the ceremonial leader during our Temascal session. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's kind of the way that people have come to me. Wow, it's it's absolutely fascinating to me. So, you know, my background is nothing as, as in-depth as yours, but I was also fascinated by um, Native American cultures and studied a bit with a uh, woman in upstate New York named uh, Twyla Nitch, uh, who was a, um, she was the granddaughter of the last, I think, Mohawk. Seneca, I, mean, I believe. Seneca? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I think. I, I could be wrong. I could be but wrong. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, I had minimal studies with her, um, but I did go to the, the reservation there, which was not far from my university, um, and spent some Wednesday nights there where she let people like me in there and tell us and teach us and stuff like that. It was, it was fascinating. Um, did some sweat lodge type things and some purification ceremonies. Um, did a lot of investigation on my own, probably not well. But uh, did did it anyway? So uh, certainly explored, and um, I'm very familiar with the idea of of the depth of the work that's going into there and the sacredness of it. Um, and certainly, I believe that it has informed my work a little bit as well, from certainly the Ericksonian standpoint. And you know, my NLP work doesn't tend to be quite as cut and dry, like you know, do a technique. Although it can be from time to time, um, but I'm, I have great, great respect for it, certainly. And I'm just curious: when you think of um, coaching now, do you ever do anything that's not what you've just described? Do you ever do? Like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. So, so what I just described to you is kind of where we start. Uh huh. So somebody could either somebody could come to me for just Olympia. You know, they just feel like they need to get something off their chest or they, you know, something's just not right and they want to come in for a tune up. So so that could be done with no platica at all or very minimal. You know, we just have a conversation for five minutes and then start ceremonializing. it. Mm-hmm. But the longer term work that what I would describe as deep dive work uses that only as a touch off point. And so 
you know, since COVID hit, I've been doing this on Zoom um, with clients that see me either once a week or on alternating weeks, once every other week for the entire duration of COVID. So are, let me just stop you there. How do you do this on Zoom? Do you have, do they have to have their own egg and eagle mm -hmm. feathers, really? Yeah. So what they, when it comes to the ceremonial part of it, you know, they they mirror what I do. Uh huh. Wow. And we we do all the all the steps. It's just that they're they have to get some copal. They they have to get hold of the her herbs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I prefer it that way. Um. I prefer if they use copal, but if not, they can use sage or palo santo. Mm -hmm. But they do, whereas normally I would be using something called a poposhkomit, which is a um, the ceremonial vessel for burning copal. Right. Normally, I would use that on them. If they are a long-term person with me, they'll get one from me as a gift that they can then start to use. Um. And a lot of the, you know, some of the people who come to me are are in the process of becoming healers themselves, which is why it really is using this wounded healer archetype. And a lot of times there are people who want to be healers and have studied technique, but don't necessarily know how to create something that is truly their own. And that's why when we go deep into an understanding of what needs to be healed, that it becomes like a, a formula for understanding how that person is going to work with somebody else. And a lot of the work also has to do with a, a concept called susto, which is a term anthropologists call magical fright. Now, overlaps a lot with trauma therapy. And the problem that I have with the way that the term trauma is being used today in the popular literature is that it it sometimes sort of trivializes what a trauma is. And to me, a trauma is a severe event, you know, being in a situation where you see somebody murdered in front of you or a, a severe car accident. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a susto is a moment of spiritual fright or soul fright. And what happens is, according to this belief system, what happens is um, that a part of you leaves, a splinter, and they call it a soul part. Now, in our we're modern folks, so we might not believe that you have a, a, a piece of your soul that leaves, but certainly a piece of you is left at the place, at the time that the susto happened. And one susto, what, this is the part that I've discovered, is that one susto seems to lead to a lifetime of similar sustos, hmm. thematically connected in one way or another. And being that you're living in the country, you might understand the analogy that I'm going to give you. If you ever live in a country house where you get one mouse... <laughs> all of a sudden, you you don't have one mouse, you have a bunch of mice. Yes. Because one mouse figures out the way to get into your house. Mm -hmm. And then they leave a scent trail that the other mice follow, so they get in. And to me, that's, the, that's what susto is like. One susto creates an opening 
for the other sustos to take place. And that's why if you look at the chain of sustos that a person has in doing, and one piece of this is soul retrieval, we go to those moments, we go to those places where each susto took place in order to bring back that part that was left behind. Mm, mm. And we do this ceremonially. Wow. It, it has a, obviously a corresponding psychological process that takes place. But what I found in my deep work with the people who are healers is all of a sudden they get these aha moments when they experience the connection between the different sustos and then find out, you know what? That had a lot to do with why I went into healing in the first place. And then all of a sudden they start attracting people to their their business to their practice who somehow have something in alignment with that right well that sounds very very familiar to me actually you know I've, i can i can relate to having that in my own life and one of the reasons perhaps i became a healer not just a musician because um, there was a transition period where i was I, I was a musician. That was what I did. That's what I earned my living doing. But then I had to, I had to, in a sense, transition in order to find my own healing. I did that, and then I became a healer, if you will. Um, exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. Susto, huh? So that is also interesting. You know, with with uh, havening, the havening techniques that I've been doing. There's uh, that we do a process called transpirational havening where once we've seems to have uh, helped alleviate the traumatic encoding of the original event, we do this transpirational sort of calling forth of the traumas, um, giving in a name, and then uh, repeating that name over and over again. And it seems to be, you know, taking out all the related other, you know, traumas that are similar, but different than all related together to to get them all out. So it's a similar, seems like a very similar sort of processing. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so those are two. So I've only told you two pieces of, of what I do. Good. We have to have, to have you back. This is. <laughs> <laughs> so but at any rate, that's, so it all begins with those elements, the, the platica, the, the limpia and the soul retrieval. And then it sets us up with toward a, a course of of um, self-inquiry, peeling away at layer after layer after layer to understand what it is that needs to be healed and then how to align that with the, the work in, in healing other people so that I actually coach people through a development of something that becomes their own unique healing style mm -hmm. in the same way that I came to mine out of these various pieces and through the the fulfillment in vision and dreams of how to how to create this this modality that I do. Wow, um, I know we're getting close to the end of our allotted time for today, so I don't want to take you too much down another pathway. Um, but I, I do want to have you back because I want to learn more about this. Just so people know, people, you have your own podcast as well. I do. So if people want to hear more from you, and you're also within that podcast, you're interviewing other healers. A lot of times that's what I've been listening to. 
um, in lots of non-Western modalities. Yeah. So the podcast is called Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures. And it's on iTunes. It's on all the major platforms. So that's the name of it? Healing, Sadia? Healing and Spirituality in World yeah. Cultures. World Cultures. With Robert right. Vetter. With Robert Vetter. So, uh, so Robert, not Bob. Well, that's what it is on there. But everybody knows me as Bob. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Good. That's quite a mouthful for a title of a podcast. I know it's too many words. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're good words. And is there a is there a website that people can find you at as well? Uh, well, I'm in the process. And it's funny you said Bob Vetter because my website that I'm in the process of putting together will be bobvetter.com. Okay, so it doesn't exist yet, Bob. It doesn't exist yet. I have the well. I have the you have the URL. domain, uh, but the pod the uh, the website is not up yet. Um, hopefully, within about a month, it'll be up. So maybe, it will maybe be by Bob the time people listen to this, bobvetter.com will be a reality. But I can give out my email address if oh, that's what, okay. what's that. <laughs> so that is Bob V one 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 at aol dot com. One 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 four ones. Four ones. Bob V B O B V one 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 at AOL dot com. Hey, I'm the last person on AOL. How old are you? <laughs> Too old. <laughs> I got that domain I got that when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> oh dear. That's very funny. So um quick question. What about stuff like ayahuasca and stuff. I know there's a lot of people that have done these things. I, it's the type of thing I would have done in college. I didn't ever do ayahuasca, but um, what is your opinion about people doing things like well, that? Well, I am not necessarily in favor of it. Um, with, okay, with certain, let me just say, being here in New York, I am not in favor of it in the way that it has become. So it it started out as something that took place in an indigenous con context mm -hmm. within indigenous cultures uh, in South America. And in order to, to be involved in it, somebody would have to go there and put all that effort into it. Mm -hmm. It has become something now here in New York where they say you could you could find an ayahuasca ceremony every weekend of the year somewhere in Brooklyn or Manhattan hmm. that people are hosting these events in their living rooms. And to me, it's taking something that's sacred within a particular culture out of context and people are using it because they believe that it's a spiritual uh, shortcut mm -hmm. to enlightenment. Right. So I, I, don't necessarily see that as a positive thing. Cool. Um, I think that it's important that we all understand that we're in this for the long haul, that, that self-knowledge and healing is not something that takes place overnight. And that for the most part, it's something that requires our dedication, our understanding, our prayer, our sincerity you know and i i i just don't see i don't see all of those things in the ayahuasca the popular ayahuasca movement 
Yeah, I can I can appreciate that. I, I I probably even agree for the most part. I think that for while many people are looking for a shortcut, it is also true. I think for a lot of people that when they're doing that, they realize you know that it is a commitment. You know, after you've after you've swallowed that brew. I mean, I've never done it, but I can just imagine having done other things similar in the in the way distant past. Um, that you know, once you've ingested the medicine, um, you know you're you're in it. You're you're committed to it. You know, there's there's le- learnings going to happen from the plant medicines. <laughs> you've you've paid for the roller coaster ride. Now you got to see it through. Yeah, <laughs> there's no getting off once you got on. Yeah. And there's some everyone that I know that has done it. Everyone that I know personally that has done it has given me very positive reports of of their experiences from having done it, and are glad that they did. So, um, could yeah, it- and I and I'm not, you know, people should do whatever, whatever they want. I'm just telling you why I am not personally involved in it yeah. in any way. Good, and it, but it does also seem to me that once a person has done that, then they can say, okay, this has been a really good introduction to this, you know, kind of world of ways of thinking and that if I wanted to go deeper into it, then I could, you know, go to bobvetter.com. Or... <laughs> I mean, well, that... I would like to say that, that I encourage anybody who would like to go down the road of, of a, um, a deep spiritual dive, um, you know, that we co-create something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and whereas my own mentors were people that I got to be with, uh, you know, and watch the way that they worked. They didn't work with me to step step by step in the way that I work with someone to help them to find their particular way. When someone does enter into working with you, usually how long does it, are we talking as far as a... a... Well, I mean, we, we kind of decide at the beginning what, what our plan is. So somebody may come for one session. Somebody may say, well, you know, I there I want to work on this one particular issue and we'll dedicate like a, a number of, of sessions, let's say four or six sessions to try to attain that goal. But the people who are really, really serious about um, aligning this with developing their own healing modality, we're talking, I would say, nine months to a year of steady work. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very cool. But then they own it. You know, it's it's truly theirs as opposed to something that um, they got from somebody else. Yeah, I get that. Well, this is I'm absolutely fascinated. And I would, I would like this to be part one of a ongoing, at least at least two parts, because there's more that I want to learn from you. But thank you for this. It's, this was a in-depth discussion about some what can obviously be some really in-depth work with people and uh yeah well doug if you don't mind let me give a shout out um about how much i appreciate the work that you do and the sincerity and the dedication that you have to walking your talk so just want to throw that out for the listeners (laughs) the profound respect that i have for you well thank you Right back at you. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I hope that we do this again real soon. Be my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Doug. 
This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks. Thanks.